Psalm 15, and also turn in the back of your hymnals to page 933. We'll be reading together uh, chapter 22, sections 3, 4, and 5, and Psalm 15 first. 933, page 933. Psalm 15, verse 1. A Psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. And then Westminster Confession of Faith Chapter 22, starting at uh, section 3. Whosoever taketh an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act, and therein to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Neither May any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is good and just, and what he believeth so to be, and what he is able and resolved to perform. An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words, without equivocation or mental reservation. It cannot oblige to sin. But in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's own hurt. Nor is it to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels. A vow is of the like nature with a promissory oath, and ought to be made with the like religious care and to be performed with the like faithfulness. Let's pray. Our blessed Lord, we ask for your help, for your guidance, for your understanding of your word, but also we pray that you would help us as a confessional church to hold to these old paths of what is true and what we believe to be a faithful summary of your holy scriptures. Help us to understand and to believe and to grow in grace, to be those who keep our word and keep our promises. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, as we look at this text here of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 22, uh, sections uh, 3 through 5, I want us to observe that oaths and vows 
or something that might be more commonplace than you realize in society. Um, if you've ever applied for a mortgage, you no doubt were subjected to an, a promissory oath or a vow of some sort. Now, when you did that, you didn't call God as witness. You didn't call God's name to say, God, may you judge me if I don't keep this, this, oh, this promise to pay my mortgage. Um, now, maybe if you had a Reformed Presbyterian banker, or maybe if you were borrowing money from a Reformed Presbyterian person, he might make you take a promissory oath of that nature. But likely you didn't have to take a promissory oath with God as witness when you were promising to pay back the money. Now, I know that there's a lot of overlap between an oath and a vow, and we'll look, that, we'll look at that in a little bit at section 5, which kind of says that there's overlap, but just bear with me for a second. If you do have a, if you do have a contract for a mortgage and you fail to keep that contract, there are consequences. You could lose your house. And maybe if you've paid a lot of equity in that house, maybe even for 20, 30 years, you could lose all of that equity that you've paid in that house by breaking your promise. Another area is college loans. I know that's a popular thing among some, that they want to have this college loan forgiveness uh, deal uh, for some young people. The question is, if they make a bill um, to allow, if they make a legal, a law allowing this to happen, who's stuck paying for this? Is it going to be the colleges? Is it going to be the taxpayers? Very likely the taxpayers. So in my question concerning this, is this something that would be lawful and responsible? Of course, uh, politicians, if they promise such things, I'm sure there's lots of young people who will give them a good vote. But if you break, one's con- if you break your contract regarding loans, especially even college loans, in that sense, you could be held responsible for some consequences. Um, some people, if they don't pay their debts, they go into bankruptcy and they might lose things. <coughs> paying back a college loan, someone uh, who knows from experience, paying back a college loan, which would take some years, is a hard and difficult thing. But sometimes we have to do um, that And I think it's a faithful application of Psalm 15, verse 4, which would be swearing to one's own hurt. Now, before a watching world, we have to be those whose word can be trusted. So when we have to take a stand, we we have to take an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We give a faithful uh, we, give, we faithfully bear the truth to the very best of our ability. Now, if there's somebody who fails to do that, um, if there's somebody who fails to do that, there are consequences as well. It's called perjury. Um, section 5, here's the, here's the one that, that tells... I'm, I'm skipping the section 5 before going to section 3 and 4 for a reason, because there's a lot of overlap here. It says... In section 5, a vow is of the like nature with a promissory oath and ought to be made with the like religious care and to be performed with the like faithfulness. Now, that, that's to me, my understanding of this particular section here is saying 
What's the difference between a promissory oath and a vow? Not much. Here, here's the case in point. If you're going to become um, president and you're going to take the office of president, even for a term, you, you take a promissory oath of office. But if you're going to take the office in a church, it's called a vow. And even if in some churches they have elders who take a, an oath of office for a four-year term, it's still called a vow. So one's called an oath, one's called a vow. If you look in the Bible and you look up certain translations where the word vow is there, and you look up across different English translations, some translations translate it as vow, some translations translate it as oath. Because it's ve- they're very similar in many regards. Again, I'm sure, I hope this is not too complex, but oaths can be two things. A promise to tell the truth. That's an oath that you would take if you're in court. But also an oath to commit a duty, which would be a promissory oath, which is very similar to the vow. Okay. All right, section three. Whosoever taketh an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act. I'm not going to go over this again, but if you want to study this more in depth, go back and listen to the prior sermon. Sections 1 and 2 talk about the very weight of this act of taking an oath or a vow, really. You're calling God as witness. You're calling God to judge you if you are not going to keep that oath or vow. That's a weighty and solemn act. It's also considered an act of religious worship. So that's sections 1 and 2. Section 3 continues. It says, A religious oath calls God as witness and judge in the solemn act to avouch nothing but what he is fully persuaded is the truth. Now, that's a word that we don't use much, avouch. But to avouch is to make a sworn testimony of something that is true to the best of your knowledge. In other words, you might say, I avouch that this is the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Section 3 goes on to say that neither may any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is good and just and what he believeth so to be good and just, you could say, and what he is able and resolved to perform. Now this language here is so parallel to Section 4. I'm going to read that language as well. I'm going to discuss it together. Section 4 Second sentence says, It, an oath, cannot oblige to sin, but in anything not sinful being taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's own hurt. So sections three and four say, you cannot have an oath that is causing someone to sin or to participate in sin. It forbids an oath to anything sinful. Now, Uh, For you to take a religious oath, it must be what is good and just. Lord willing, next week we're going to discuss more in depth section 7, but we're going to take a little preview. Section 7 says that it is unlawful, it forbids popish, popish monastic vows of perpetual single life. It forbids that because it's not lawful. Because Scripture says, if you have a desire, um, you're, you're, you have a desire that you could say burns, uh, you should marry, not have a vow of monastic 
um, perpetual single life. Now, the rampant scandal that is rocked the whole world, not just America, but the whole world in the Roman Catholic Church of boys that have been abused and molested is something that is evidence that this is a vow that they are taking that they are not, absolutely not, able and resolved to perform. It's a heinous, wicked, foolish, destructive vow because it promotes sin and wickedness and destruction and the wrecking of human lives. As uh, the Confession says um, regarding the regulative principle, if something comes other than from Holy Scripture, it could be from men's imaginations or from a suggestion of Satan. I vote that this is a suggestion of Satan. It's that heinous. Now, let's say a priest does get converted and he wants to join a Protestant church. Should he be allowed to marry because he made a vow of celibacy? Absolutely, because his vow is baseless and sinful and it, it shouldn't have been made in the first place. He is not held and bound to that particular vow. He should be able to marry in a church and that was the case with Martin Luther. Um, he married after he um, left the Roman Catholic Church. Nuns married and many other priests married uh, during the time of the Reformation. Now, getting back to this, this issue of promissory oaths and all this other stuff. Don't get too upset if you go and apply for a loan and the bank wants to know all of your financial information, even to the very most intimate detail, how much you spend on groceries, how much you spend on your phone, how much you spend on your water bill, how much you spend on electricity, cable, you name it. They want to know every single thing. And they want to know exactly how much money you make and they want to know your tax, tax records for the last four, so many years or whatever. And don't feel that's an invasion of your privacy because that is an agreement with this Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, it says that a financial officer who knows money, it's their job to keep the bank from binding a person with a debt beyond what he is able and resolved to perform. You cannot ask someone to bear a burden that they are not able and resolved to perform, even financially. That's why they want to know all that information. And the failure to do this is why we had this crazy um, financial downturn with so many people having foreclosures. Because what happened was people were paying a balloon uh, mortgage where they, yes, they could, they could afford a, ho a house note for 20 years or maybe 15 years. But then once that note went up in, in, in that amount and, or a bigger amount was due, they couldn't pay it and they lost their home. They were able and resolved to perform it for the first 15 years. But how are you expecting them to pay it once it, once it ballooned? It's ridiculous. I think it's a breaking of, uh, of what this confession says. You can't expect someone to make a vow to uphold something that they're not able and resolved to perform. What good is it if they can only perform it for 10 years, but not the next, the next 10 years after that? Okay, backtracking a little bit, section 4 gives us some numerous uh, pieces of practical godly advice for how an oath is to be made. An oath is to be taken in the plain and common sense of the words. Maybe you didn't think of it before, but the Westminster Confession is opposed to legalese. 
you know, that complex legal language when you read the document four or five times over. This is a good test for legalese or not. If you read the document five times over and you still only understand 50% of it, it's probably legalese. The, the, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is opposed to that. Um, the language, it says, should be in plain and common sense of the words. Um, inaccessible language in a vow is something that's not good. And maybe businesses and uh, inst- financial institutions, when they have somebody who's maybe poorly educated or someone who's maybe mentally challenged, they have to take that into account. And if the person going out for a loan is not intellectually capable to make a decision financially, they need to find they need to not make, agree to that relation that that particular relationship. I mean, we know somebody in our church who financed a home, and then later on couldn't agree to. I mean, he couldn't afford to continue financing his home and is having to sell his house because he wasn't mentally capable of buying that house in a proper fashion in the first place. Um, an oath is to be taken. Uh, without equivocation. Uh, equivocation is the use of deliberate, evasive wording or the use of ambiguous language. Let's turn to Matthew 23 for an example of this. Matthew 23. If this wasn't actually recorded in Scripture, I wouldn't believe it. Matthew 23, starting at verse 16. Jesus says in this great many woes to the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple which sanctified the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by both the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In other words, I'm going to make a promise to you, but I'm going to, I'm going to put it in this, this little strange language. I, I made a vow by the temple, but not the gold of the temple. So therefore, I don't know if you caught that, but I don't have to keep my word now. Because I, I, I didn't make the, the vow in the way that you thought I made the vow. What? It's preposterous. It's ridiculous. How could religious leaders in the society uh, come up with this kind of rigmarole? <laughs> it's, it's really... Uh, if there's ever an example of what they would call equivocation, this is it. So it goes on to say, section 4, an oath is to be taken without mental reservation. Now, let's, let's use an example of a man um, who's being examined for the office of deacon or elder. He's, he's been approached by people in the congregation, and they're telling him, we really want you to be an elder, 
or we really want you to be our deacon in the church. Yet he says, I, I really don't want to. I really don't feel the conviction of pursuing that. Yeah, but the church really needs you to do this. Now, that guy should not be pursued for ordination. Because he is being pressured. He's have, he has mental reservations. He, he's not committed to doing it. He's, he's being kind of prodded along to do it. Well, it's not his desire. He should desire an office, elder or deacon, for himself, not because people are prodding him in that direction. Another one is this. If, if the spouse is not in with him and supporting him in his ministry, it's very likely he's not called to the office either. You can't have a man serving in the office if his spouse is opposed to it. It's, it's unwise to, to make that decision. Um, the BCO goes on to say this. I have it quoted there in your little outline. BCO, this is regarding an evangelist, page 59. You, this is part of the vow. Have you been induced, that's persuaded, have you been induced as far as you know your own heart to seek the office of the holy ministry from love to God and a sincere desire to promote his glory in the gospel of his son. So that's the question. Why is that there? Well, because somebody might be induced by people in the congregation who are prodding him along rather than the Holy Spirit prodding him along to pursue the office. He's been induced by somebody other than God to pursue an office. Um, so that's why that language is there in part of the vow, because it, they, the OPC and, and wisely would like men to pursue an office because they have a, a heartfelt con, uh, conviction that they want that for themselves, and it, there's no mental reservation against it. Section 4, uh, toward the end, it says that a lawful vow is taken, if it's taken, it binds to performance, although to a man's hurt. And that's where we look at Psalm 15. Let's turn back there, Psalm 15. So if somebody does take a lawful vow, or oath, you could say, he's to keep it to his own hurt. Psalm 15 O Lord, who may abide... Now, this I'm, I'm, I'm going to explain this, that we have both a vow and an oath here, I believe. Um, o Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Now, you could say that might apply there to him taking an oath before witnesses, maybe in a court. Are you going to tell the truth? The man of God speaks the truth in his heart. He goes on, he says, He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend, whose eyes a reprobate is despised, who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. That swearing there could apply to either a promissory oath or a vow. He promises to do something. Oops, it's harder than I thought. But I'm going to do it anyway to my own hurt 
even if it means difficulty, sleepless nights, sacrificial, uh, sacrificing money, time, resources, whatever it may be, he's going to struggle. <laughs> he might even, well, not literally, but he might even bleed, you could say, to pay that what he promised. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. That gets back to the college loan and other financial debts. You promised that you took out these loans and you were going to pay them. The responsible thing to do is not to just seek to get off. I mean, yeah, if you, if you have to refinance and pay it over a longer period, lower notes, yes. Or maybe negotiate with the lender. But be responsible and pay what you owe, even if it's difficult, even if it hurts, even if it takes years in marriage, the vow is for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, till death do us part. Well, oops, I found out something about you I'm not really crazy about. We didn't know this when we were engaged or dating, but we found out now, and I don't like it. Well, you vowed to love your spouse till death do you part, and you have to keep your word. You swear to your own hurt is what you should do. Section 4 closes by saying, Nor is it an oath to be violated, although made to heretics or infidels. So no matter whether this religious, uh, whether the person is religious or non-religious of the other party, Section 1 says the, the lawful oath is a matter of religious worship. So the oath, think about this, it's not... The most important person in an oath is not the two parties who are making an oath or a vow together. But when you make a promise, the most important person in the midst of that promise is the God of heaven. He's the one that is a religious act of worship that you're swearing to him that you're going to keep your word. Therefore, he is the most important one. It's an act of religious worship. To, be, to honor him and to keep your word. It's a violation of your oath if you say it's invalid because the guy's an atheist or a Muslim. Where do you find that in Scripture that's permissible? You call God to witness in your matter. Uh, you call him as a judge as well of your sworn testimony. And if you violate, if you violate your oath or your vow... Uh, you bring God's displeasure upon you. Now, what happens if the person is an unbeliever and they, they violate their oath or their vow and God's bringing displeasure upon them? Well, they're adding unto themselves um, basically a, God's wrath on that day of judgment. Now, what if a Christian, maybe a fellow believer here, has broken a promise and how does God enact his displeasure upon a believer? Well, he's not going to curse you because we know Jesus Christ has already, has already taken the curse on your behalf. But God sure can chastise. He can discipline us in ways as a loving father uh, does. Um, I don't want to be trite, but there's such thing as a holy spanking, a holy chastisement. And sometimes we get it when we transgress our word and we break our promises or we t 
tell a lie under oath. And let's uh, pray that God would help us and keep us from that. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your holy word, especially this as we have read in Psalm 15, of those who love you and may abide uh, on your holy hill. And we long for that time where we will abide with you in heaven and glory forever and ever. Lord, we pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to be those who are honest and trustworthy, those who speak the truth in our hearts and who speak the truth to others, those who do not slander, those of us, we pray that you would help us to swear even to our own hurt and help us, we pray, not to change, not to be fickle, but to be steadfast. Help us, we pray, in these things that we would honor you and honor our blessed Lord Jesus, he who kept his oath and promise and saved us by his holy work. For we pray all these things in the blessed name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's uh, stand and sing a paraphrase of uh, Psalm 15. It's 15b. Let's stand and sing 15b. Who, O Lord, with thee abiding? Let's stand and sing. 